0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that tried to gatecrash Lionel Messi's barbecue. My name is Cameron McDonald and i spent three years working as an FA Licensed Intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcast about all things football on platforms such as Talkfoot Radio and Kidney Sport. But above all else, we're
1: fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. The first leg of the European Semi-Finals have now been played with everything still to play for in each tie except perhaps the eight-goal festival held between Manchester United and Roma. But where the midweek was all about football, the weekend was all about protest. Several clubs, players and football organisations held a social media blackout to protest against abuse and discrimination, whilst the latest in the long line of fan protests saw the tie between United and Liverpool postponed. As always, timestamps are in the description, and let's start off by looking at that protest held outside Old Trafford on the Sunday.
0: Yeah, so this is the first game in Premier League history to be postponed by fan protest. And what a message that sends, particularly given that, you know, Manchester United versus Liverpool is almost definitely the largest fixture in English football. I think maybe there's a period of time, you know, back in the early 90s and, and mid 90s, we could have said Manchester United versus Arsenal when it was sort of United would win two and then Arsenal would win one. So it was often sort of a league decider. But over the history of English football, easily it's got to be Manchester United versus Liverpool um, of Agreed. course this isn't the first time that a game has been postponed at Old Trafford in the Premier League I remember there was that really funny uh, there was that really weird seemed serious at the time and then ended up becoming comical postponement in 2015-16 when Bournemouth came to Old Trafford because they thought they'd found a bomb there but what it turned out had happened is that it had been a training exercise by a company that finds and diffuses bombs had left one of their example bombs at the ground they were like oh my god oh my god and it turned out to be the security company had left one behind
1: (laughs) yeah i mean i think the only uh the only people that came out of that situation with any sort of um glamour were the people that make the fake bombs
0: (laughs) yeah yeah exactly they're like well i mean you know good product but um no so so the protest was was really interesting It started off, you know, very similar to a lot of the protests we've seen around a lot of these other Super League clubs recently. We've seen very similar with Arsenal, Chelsea and Liverpool, certainly, these huge crowds just assembling to protest. Not only the club's involvement in the Super League, but uh, certainly in Arsenal's case, and and I suppose to an extent Liverpool not so much Chelsea, but the the state of the ownership. Um, The difference here, chiefly, was that the protest took somewhat of a turn as some fans managed to... I, the, the term that's been used is storm the pitch, and as much as I enjoy that sort of image of United fans heroically storming the pitch, realistically there are a lot of young kids as well as there were people of all ages. But like some young kids were able to get through a gate and get on the pitch. So it wasn't wasn't as militaristically you know, explosive yeah, as, yeah, as some sure. people would have you believe. Um, but still, you know, people managed to trespass and get onto the pitch, and there was a very a very small number of isolated incidences of um, of violence and property damage. Um, what I would want to start off by saying is that obviously it'd be remiss for me to not talk about the fact that there was violence and a bit of property damage and criminal damage and all that. I think it's key to stress that this was the vast, vast, vast minority minority. The majority fans didn't even get into the pitch. A lot of people who were at the protest didn't even know there were people on the pitch. And even within the people who got onto the pitch, there was a, it was a minority within the minority that were inciting violence and uh, causing criminal damage. So you know, you're going to see a lot of stuff over the course of this week and we will have seen it since the weekend of people trying to sort of discredit the whole protest as, you know, football hooligans at it again. Of course, there were some people who took it a bit too far. I think the vast majority of fans there were peacefully protesting, protesting with their full legal right and, and not doing anything wrong. Um, but obviously, you know, as with any group of large people, there's always going to be a couple of people who, who take it a bit too far. Um, yeah, definitely. It
1: was- and and. It- as is often the case as well, it gets defined by the extremists within the group rather than you know the the large majority of, of the people that were there on the day.
0: Yeah, like, like, like I said, for myself and us talking about this, it, it'd be an oversight and just ignoring part of it to not talk about the fact that these things happened, but they, for me anyway, and for anyone who's really looking at it, by no way defined the protest. I think the protest was much more meaningful and larger than that, and the vast majority of people didn't get involved, but... Nonetheless, it's still worth noting. Something else worth noting, I thought, that was quite interesting, was that it was Sky Sports who were covering the Manchester United versus Liverpool game, at least here in England, uh, and so subsequently were covering sort of the things as they unfolded, which gave rise to some very awkward moments, as you sort of had the studio of Graham Sooners, Roy Keane, and Micah Richards sort of just sitting there trying to fill dead air for an hour and a half. Micka <laughs> Richards, I've, I've never seen him less talkative. <laughs>
1: I mean, in terms of like people that you want to spend an hour and a half with, I feel like Graham Sooner's has got to be somewhere near the bottom of the list.
0: Well, I think it was quite funny because Graham Sooner's. I was so, I was sort of almost comforted by the coverage that he was giving of because I thought everyone else. Quite interestingly, obviously you had Gary Lineker and Jamie Carragher there, but in the studio you had uh, Micka Richards and uh, Roy Keane. Both seemed pretty supportive of the whole protest thing. Obviously everyone did the what I've just done in sort of disclaimer, condemn violence and, and criminal damage, but they all seemed pretty supportive. And I was almost sort of weirdly comforted that Graham Sooners had gone back to having just ass-tier takes, because for the last couple of weeks he's come <laughs> out with a couple of salient points about the Super League, and I've sort of been like... Is up down. It's left right. Graham Souness is is making making sense. <laughs> so nice. it's nice I, reassuring,
1: I, safe territory. Graham Souness is an idiot again. Good.
0: I, I I was weirdly comforted by it. You know what I mean?
1: I don't know exactly what you mean. And for those of you who don't know what he did say, I think um the main thing that he came out with was was this suggestion that the reason why Manchester United fans are protesting is because of you know recent lack of success at the club rather than you know the fact that this goes back. Fifteen years to all the way back to when the Glazers took over, and this is you know just one in a long line of protests to that effect.
0: Yeah, I think I think his almost verbatim line was oh, you weren't protesting like this when you were winning trophies, to which every single United fan, and indeed most people who have watched football, even if you're not a United fan, were going, well, that's that's not true, mate. <laughs> even in some of the most successful eras, in 2005, when they were still winning leagues on the regular, a lot of fans were you know, getting very annoyed one of the most iconic sort of, um, you know, green and gold things, you know, all those green and gold scarves and flags, is literally David Beckham wearing one at the height of some of United's power. So I just thought that was... At best, irresponsible reporting, and at worst, just plainly ignorant. But um other than that, I thought it was kind of interesting that Sky Sports had a pretty favourable coverage of it, because Sky Sports were, you know, this was a protest meant to strike at the hearts of the Glazers, and, you know, definitely did do that, but arguably the biggest losers in this situation of the game not being televised were Sky Sports themselves. Obviously, they had other games on in that day, but the crown jewel of the day of football and of the weekend of football, indeed, because as we discussed, it's, you know, one of the biggest games, if not the biggest game in English football, um, you know, was was this United Liverpool match that, that got postponed. So I thought it was quite interesting. That they didn't sort of have like a camera cut to a, the one pundit you could find who liked the Super League so they can go, oh, I didn't like the Super League when Sky Sports weren't getting involved. <laughs> but now that their bottom line's threatened...
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, if I'm putting my cynical hat on, it's all to do with, you know, they're desperately trying to rebrand themselves as being for the fans um, and being, mm-hmm. I guess, a, a a platform for good. Um, so they kind of had to let, you know, people take swipes of them while they lost millions. But and that in itself was quite fun to watch.
0: Yeah, definitely. I thought I thought it definitely was interesting to sort of see this a situation where they lost out for them to be like, "Ah, oh, look at this. this! Isn't isn't the right to protest great?" And I'm sure there are a bunch of executives with clenched fists standing just behind the cameras. <laughs> um, oh, I'm absolutely sure. Manchester United Supporters Trust uh, came out, and Supporters Trust have been such a great voice in this period. It's been great to sort of have, uh, you know, a centralised or all of the different major clubs have had this sort of good voice to come out and represent the club for the most part in my opinion in a really good light Uh, Manchester United supporters trust uh, penned an open letter to the Glazers following the protest uh, in which they said amongst other things let's be very clear that no one wants what's happened at Old Trafford yesterday to be a regular event what happened was the culmination of 16 years in which your family's ownership of the club has driven us into debt and decline and we felt ever more sidelined and ignored Um, and I think that this is where the Manchester United protests have differed most from pretty much all of the protests that we've seen, aside from maybe the Arsenal ones and maybe to a degree the Liverpool ones, but I don't, I I could be wrong here, but I I don't feel like there's been an ongoing Liverpool sentiment against John W. Henry and FSG, um, you know, over the last couple of years. Um, I think a lot of the other fans involved in this have been angry at their owners because of the Super League, whereas for United fans in this protest, the Super League was sort of just like the final straw, or I think not even the final straw, I think the final straw was, was a long time ago, but it was just yet another offence to the rap sheet that the Glazers have sort of had against uh, United fans in in their perspective.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I would say, I think that, yeah, Arsenal fans have this in common with Man U fans because they also have been long protesting the ownership of Stan Kronke. Um And for for much the same reasons, you know, clubs falling into disrepair, And the fans are being left by the wayside. There was something really nice and fitting, I thought, about the fact that the match got postponed due to the fans. Mm. Just again, disclaimers aside, I just enjoyed that fans can have that impact still, even if it's illegal. Um, I don't know. what, What do you make of that?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously this one had sparks of illegal behavior. I had a a chat with a with a mate who's a little bit better versed in in the legal uh, profession than I am and asked him sort of if there are avenues that would be able to postpone a game legally. And he said, you know, there are a few sort of organizing a certain way and don't cause any criminal damage or, or unrest if you were to just sort of gather around the hotel as some of the fans did gather around the Lowry on this day. And I thought, yeah, as you said, it was very fitting that the fans were the ones who got the game called off because... Not to put too fine a point on it, but the real argument, the core argument that all f- fans have shared, whether they're fans of Super League clubs, or they're fans of the clubs that weren't part of the Super League, the whole argument, the core thesis that everyone has shared is that football is nothing without the fans. And I think that that was empirically proved by the fact that the fans said, you're not playing a game today, and the game wasn't played. Um, and I quite enjoyed, yeah, the, the very literal sort of bringing to life of that sentiment.
1: Yeah. So I was interested. um, I was reading an interview with Jeff Pearson in The Independent, um, who apparently is one of England's foremost researchers on football crowds, which I did not know was a thing. Um, And one point that he made, which I found interesting, was he said the stadium should be a fortress. And I get that. I I completely understand the sentiment from a practical perspective and these days from a covered perspective as well. But just given how the game was stopped, it did just ring with the sense of like, fans shouldn't be able to influence the club. And fans going, we, we yes, we can. We still absolutely can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, it is interesting now to see what happens because for me, it felt like this protest had the potential to be a real turning point. We've had all manner of fan protests before across the league. We've had sort of, you know, as we've seen with all these other clubs very recently, but in recent years as well, fans protesting outside the ground. We've had different sets of fans walking out in the middle of the game. Uh, obviously, that's not something that's possible at the moment because fans aren't at the game, but it's something we've seen. Um, and it's never really seen change. Newcastle fans have done that, I think, Maybe once, maybe twice, they've walked out in the middle of the game to protest the ownership of Mike Ashley. He's still there, swilling his beers and, and driving the club into disrepair. Similarly, the Glazers, similarly, the Cronkies. Whereas this is the first time that an impact of this size has been made, uh, in, in my mind, you know, to the active detriment of the Premier League and Sky Sports and potentially Manchester United themselves. Um, it's key to note that although the FA are able to award Liverpool the game on these grounds, because you can attribute the blame of, you know, United's fans to United and so say, well, okay, it's in the FA regulation, they can do that. Um, According to the Mirror, Liverpool have made the decision not to ask the FA to award them the game, and will instead work with Manchester United to find a date for the fixture to be completed, which is you know good sportsmanship uh in and of itself it would have been very easy for them to go yoink but it would also hand the title to man city so maybe that
1: <laughs> yeah i mean it. i also guess the, the other part of it is you know liverpool hierarchy and manchester united hierarchy have been scheming together for almost a year now with all of these plans like the european super league and the big project big picture and all that stuff so you know I'm i'm quite confident that they've they've tied themselves to each other for some time now and <laughs> They they just like you know once they're done with their five minutes of high fiving before the meeting they'll probably get down to deciding that it's none of their faults and they'll just play the match again. Um, But yeah, I think I guess the other part to mention. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit more about social media abuse and Black Lives Matter later on. But this sentiment really really um, struck a chord with me for all the protests on Black Lives Matter last year when people were criticizing the way in which people protested. And, hmm. you know, they just turn around and say, well, you had a problem with it when an NFL player knelt in protest and nothing changed. So these these Man U fans have yeah. been protesting for 16 years and nothing is changing. I I personally, yes, I, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not condoning the violence as neither, neither of us are, but... What do you do if you keep protesting peacefully and nothing changes when it means this much to you?
0: Well, well, exactly. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I'm not condoning it either for a second, but you can understand why it got to that point. You can sympathize why a group of people, this is not like, you know, United fans have tried to protest for the first time and their voice hasn't been heard and they've gone, oh well, you know, the Premier League came out and they made a statement and they said, you know, fans have other avenues available to air their grievances. And that's true, but fans have been using those avenues for years and years and years to no avail. Finally here, perhaps a little bit, you know, unceremoniously and with a little bit of you know criminal intent they have made their voice heard and that's not to condone it but I do get why people felt that was their only resort um and it is interesting to think now is this going to see further games postponed by dissatisfied fans because fans have seen now that you know they can make the league bleed and they can make their teams bleed are they going to be further games that that see the same sort of thing um and I think it depends how much you attribute the postponement to the actual invasion of the pitch and how much of it was the fans sort of surrounding the Lowry Hotel. Um, Carl Anker, the uh, journalist was at the protest in his capacity, both as a journalist and a United fan. And he was sort of interviewing fellow protesters and engaging in the mood of the event. Um, and he sort of commented that where he was, from where he was, the protest was not only peaceful, but it was so civil as to be family friendly. There were sort of dads there with their kids, and the whole families were there, and the images that were being posted on mainstream media of sort of drunken fans having fist fights was a, was a real misrepresentation of what 90% of the, of the wide protest was like. He also pointed out that as he was there and fans were being shepherded away by police, there were a few different chants of people going, you'll play when we decide, and we can do this every week, which kind of begs the question. Will they do this every week? Will they keep sort of you know knocking United back because as it stands, finding a place for this game is a headache enough with limited time left in the in the league calendar. Each additional game the gets postponed will be exponentially troublesome to the to you know the league and and to the team
1: well exactly, and I completely agree yeah it it's not a lot's been made to try and make it seem like this is fans throwing their toys out the pram and and it's yeah, it's absolutely not, and I almost am asking myself, you know, will it happen? I'm asking myself, should it happen? I kind of think, yeah, keep doing it. As long as you can do it in a safe way, make your voices heard. Stuff needs to change. And change is not easy. Um, so I'm kind of, kind of all for it. I mean, the other part I would say is that, you know, one of the reasons why all of these fans ended up being in this incredibly tight, enclosed area is because... Um, the stadium decided to close off like one of the main areas, which are is for the fans, which is this big forecourt mm. outside the um, the stadium, and this forecourt is you know has kind of almost the same power as that "You'll Never Walk Alone" um, symbol does in Liverpool. It, it's a symbol of the fans, that area is for the fans, and then the fact that it got closed off for the supporters was a clear message from the hierarchy and also i kind of think you know partly their fault for what happened because it got more unrest e because you know they were being forced into
0: this really tight space yeah, definitely. And I think obviously that combined with the fact that people have definitely missed out on that sort of match day atmosphere. And this will have had sort of an aspect of that seeing other people wearing the same shirt. And a lot of the chants you could see from the videos weren't just about Glazers out, but there were chants about Ole. There were chants about former United players. People were sort of getting into the match day spirit despite not being able to actually, you know, watch the game in the ground themselves. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's definitely very interesting where this will take us next because Oliver Kay sort of wrote on Monday about this. He said that the Super League has unleashed something in English football anger undoubtedly but also an air of revolution a fresh desire to reclaim a game that has been taken further and further from its original purpose and I think that's a very interesting quote because not only is it true that the Super League has done that I think this protest will have only stoked those flames further because what we've seen here is a victory for protesters their message was communicated the event was the top story on all of major all of UK's major news networks on Sunday and Monday and you know as we spoke about earlier the call that fans have been making football is nothing without the fans was empirically proven here was proven that if the fans don't want you to play, you cannot play, and they'll take it to that extreme if they need to, and will.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Long live the revolution. Um, Shall we move into this week's guessing game?
0: Uh, Less indeed. You've got one for me.
1: I do. Uh, I have three clues for you. I will tell them now. Uh, So this player, in his youth, could have been a professional skier before opting to become... A professional footballer instead and his brother plays okay. for Bayern Munich so that's your first clue uh-huh cool your second clue is that he has the fourth most ever caps for Germany okay and the third clue is that he played for one club for fifteen years before joining a Premier League side towards the end of his career.
0: I, I think I know who, and he joined one Premier League club. He's only ever played for one Premier League club. After being at a, at a, you didn't say what the fifteen years club was. I mean, I'm assuming it's Bundesliga. No, I didn't. About. No, I, I,
1: <laughs> that was not a clue afforded to you.
0: <laughs> okay, cool. I, I, th- I think I know who this is, um, but we'll see. Uh, okay, looking at us next, we've got a story that came out today, actually, which was that Jose Mourinho, 15 days after losing the job at Spurs, has been appointed Roma manager. Um, in a trend that seems to be becoming more and more common, he was appointed in advance. He won't actually take charge until the beginning of next season. Um, but it's it's a really interesting situation.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, So, obviously, you know, Roma have a a manager currently, which is um, Paolo Fonseca. And Roma are in just a really weird place as a club. I mean, if you look at the Serie A table at the moment, they sit nine points off sixth place with a game more played than sixth place. So, you know, it's a club that really need change. And apparently they have decided that Jose Mourinho is is the man to lead them through that change.
0: Yeah, which is weird because we spoke about how, when we were talking about the future of Spurs, how we talked about if Spurs are going to have a rebuild, maybe one of the first things they need to do is jettison Mourinho. And so Roma have looked at Mourinho and gone, okay, he'll be the person we need to rebuild us. Um, Roma, uh, you know, for reference of anyone who's not familiar with Serie A, are currently seventh place. They could very easily fail to qualify for even the Europa League this season. Sassuolo we were just two points behind them with four games to play. Um, and even though they're not technically out of the Europa League yet this season... They're 6-2 down, so it's pretty unlikely they'll progress. Football's football, so who knows? It's one of those things that makes me question because you looked at Spurs' appointment of, of Mourinho, and I think most people interpreted that as like a, a sort of Hail Mary, last gasp, let's win a trophy at all costs. And that wasn't an entirely unrealistic goal for Spurs. They did ultimately get to the Carabao Cup final under Mourinho. They had been in the Champions League final, you know, not too long ago under Pochettino. So you thought that he might be the guy who could get them over the line. Roma have not had A similar history, and if you're, you know, recent history is petty in comparison to Spurs. That's a, uh, (laughs) that's not a good place to be. Ironically, their last trophy also came in 2007 eight, which is the the last time. Uh, same time as Spurs, although theirs was the Coppa Italia, which is more like the FA Cup than than the Carabao Cup. But you just, you've just you got to ask, what are their goals for Mourinho here? Surely, I mean, I know that we've just seen Inter Milan win the league and Juventus' supremacy has been toppled. Do they think that Mourinho can take them to a Scudetto? Or do they think that he might be part of a rebate? It, it, it's a very confusing appointment to me, both for Roma and for Mourinho, who has just seen how difficult it is at a club where there's a lot to do instead of walking into a Chelsea or an Inter or a Real Madrid and he's gone to a club where the job is arguably even harder?
1: Oh, absolutely, it's harder.
0: Yeah, I think,
1: um, I guess the only thing I would say is that clearly Tottenham just didn't work for him. For whatever reason, uh, we've definitely intimated before that he's over the hill, but it could also just be that Tottenham is literally like unmanageable. Um, And I could, to an extent, perhaps believe that. So I almost see it as kind of, you know, if you look at, for example, the career of Marcelo Bielsa, he had like two days at one club, one game mm. for another. Yeah, and he's now doing Lazio, great things with Leeds. Mm. And I just feel like, you know, there is a chance, there's always a chance that Mourinho could find his, his fire again, his groove again with a, a club that is looking like it's a little bit down and out rather than can you recapture your old fire? Is kind of, can he find something new with this? And they, they do have an interesting squad. I mean, they've got a couple of really good young players. Nicolo Zaniolo is like the main one that jumps out. Yeah, um, the, the joke
0: conference we been making by him is like, Mourinho couldn't get Zaniolo at Spurs, so he just moved to Roma instead.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, um,
0: stranger things have happened. Um, yeah, I, you know, it could be all right. It could be alright. I just, it just seems like such an odd matter for me. As I was reading an article by Gabriel Marcotti earlier on ESPN and, you know, he pointed out that, you know, it's going to be a very difficult job for a lot of reasons, particularly since the club is known for its fans, regularly turn up outside, they turn up outside its training ground. And he said, sometimes to cheer, sometimes not so much. it's also interesting because he's going to be reuniting with, uh, three different players that he had varying, uh, affinity with. Obviously, Chris Smalling and Henrik Mkhitaryan were players under him at United that didn't fare so well. Conversely, sure Pedro is still there. They played together for one year and, you know, it wasn't a year that Chelsea did particularly well, but he, you know, they enjoyed a, a good, he, he's, he's, very much a Mourinho player, Pedro, sort of the, the winger that isn't as fussed about scoring as he is about putting in hard shifts, which I think is like Mourinho's favorite kind of thing. Um, but uh, so, yeah, no. It, it just seems like a very weird appointment to me. I, I just wanted to to read out my favorite tweet from the situation, uh, which came from Tom Williams, who's the author of the book "Do You Speak Football?" Uh, and he said, "Jose Mourinho is appointed the Roma coach a day after the city of Rome announced the renovation of the Colosseum. One is a crumbling monument that once inspired awe, but its best days are well behind it, and the other is the Colosseum."
1: <laughs> I mean that that does somewhat say it all. Yeah, I. <laughs> I just keep finding it really funny because you know it, it felt like towards the end of Mourinho's career at Tottenham, he just wanted to be fired. He was like, "I don't want to do this job. I don't want this rebuild. Please fire me." And eventually, Tottenham like acquiesced. And now, would <laughs> turn around and be like, "Well, you are not escaping the the youth. You have to rebuild something."
0: <laughs> That's the thing. I don't disagree that there was a part of him that was like. If I can convince them to fire me, I get 15 million and I just don't like, have to be sales manager. Win-win and then he's just fire gone. me. How quickly is he going to get fired from this job? I don't know, man. I mean,
1: I guess the other part is there was a lot of expectation at Tottenham because they were so close to something. Roma were on the way down and Mourinho, if anything, is a guy who likes the down and out clubs. Uh, he he's he loves that underdog siege mentality it it could work it could work
0: yeah i mean you never know in football this could be a sort of re rebranding for mourinho I, it just seems like such a weird fit especially just because tactically he's so different to fonseca as well but you know we'll have to wait and see um i think it'll be definitely interesting to see mourinho we, we 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 all sort of even those who hate him there's a party that loves to hate him and loves to have him in the game as a result so it's good it's good to have him back in the in the game <laughs>
1: Oh, definitely. And I could really see, you know, the row of fans loving him. As you said, you know, they turn up for come rain, come shine to, to cheer or to boo. And I kind of think Mourinho might relish in that because he does often become a man of the people despite elevating himself in such a weird way.
0: That's very true. That's very true indeed. Um, moving into uh, an ongoing and worsening situation um, concerning professionals in the game receiving abuse online. Uh, this weekend saw most sporting teams, bodies, and individuals hold a boycott of social media platforms between April the thirtieth and May the fourth. That's today, so midnight this morning. Uh, the the sort of everyone sort of go back on social media, and this followed demands put to social media companies. There were three demands issued by the Premier League in unison with everyone, and that was. To to put stronger preventative and takedown measures in place to stop discriminatory abuse from being sent or seen, to be accountable for safety on their platforms and protect users by implementing effective verification, and to ensure real-life consequences for online discriminatory abuse, ban perpetrators, stop account re-registration, and support law enforcement. Um... So this is something we talked about a little bit back in episode 35. Obviously, if you're watching this on YouTube, it'll be uploaded at a later date, but it's available still now on all podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts and Spotify, etc. Um, But it's something we touched on then and something worth revisiting because this is something that despite the increased media coverage of it, or perhaps because of it, Con- like continues to get worse and worse and worse. Just players getting abused, whether it's because of race or gender or religion or anything like that. Just players just getting abused by these anonymous Twitter, Instagram and, and all those sort of accounts.
1: True. I mean, I guess the, the one thing I would say as we're, as we're kicking off this conversation is that I don't think it's getting worse. I think it's just getting seen. and I think it's getting talked about.
0: I, I would actually slightly disagree with that because we've had people like Ian Wright come out and sort of talk about how In the last few years, it's almost got to fever pitch. And I think it's got to a point, I mean, obviously a big part of that is that, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff are relatively new relative to how old someone like Ian Wright is. So it might just be like when he was a player, he didn't get that much abuse because it was just people shouting at him and he was busy playing the game. Whereas now people have like a direct line to message him when he's minding his own business on a Thursday or whatever. But it it does seem to my mind anyway, and you could be right, it could just be that there's more coverage, but it seems to my mind that it's getting worse and more frequent.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think I think it's it's potentially getting worse and more frequent on social media, but that's also just potentially because other avenues are getting shut down for these people now. Because I mean, no Ian Wright had to to. had a had an interview with um, not an interview, but uh, you know, a, a talk with Alan Shearer. I would really recommend people go and mm-hmm. uh, and watch it. It was powerful stuff. But you know, he was saying that you know he used to get shouted abuse all the time.
0: That's very true. A big part of it may be, it might have been so prevalent this season because you can't go to stadiums and, and sort of abuse. And that, that's something we touched on a bit last time we talked about this um, and also is worth talking about now because a lot of the footballing bodies are trying to sort of shift the blame onto social media companies. And it's definitely true that social media can do better, but there's also a part of me that's like, well... Don't just shift the buck, because how many times have we seen? I mean, there's that really famous picture of, I think it's uh, Danny Welbeck, and uh, also, no, it might be Daniel Sturridge, and uh, a United fan is doing sort of a monkey thing at him, and players getting racially abused, and loads of fans have been banned. So I think, yeah, it, it has been there, but I think there's a bit of a difference. Not to say one is better or worse, but I think you're more likely to engage with it if it's someone who's dming you directly rather than someone up at the top of the stadium of a sixty thousand seater trying to yell at you um even if it's the same amount of people doing it
1: yeah I, I definitely agree with that it's funny because i agree with you and it does feel like you know the last thing in a long line of the premier league playing hot potato with you know fundamental issues um from you know blaming clubs for you know the esl to to blaming social media for um, you know, being unable to stamp out racism and I've yo-yoed between the two between thinking obviously they need to do more and they can't just blame social media but also thinking you know this is them trying to do more and this is them at least trying to take it and get it removed on one very very major platform um, so I, I think this is a new thing it's different. It might it might work a little better. It might be more effective in getting social media companies to to take heed. But the main part for me is that this needs to be only part of the solution. You know, it can't just be about social media, and you can't just pretend that it's about social media. People need to be banned from football, not just stadiums. If it happens, you know, clubs need to be dock points for the behavior of their fans. It needs to be just eradicated as firmly as possible. In the, I think in my mind it needs to come to the point where even if people are thinking racist ideas, they're too afraid to say them because of the of like the ramifications of, of what will happen.
0: Yeah, and I, I agree, and I think a big part of Ian Wright's have talked about, it's a big part of what has maybe emboldened a lot of people to send these messages is that Irish, you know, kid, I think he was eighteen years old, sent Ian Wright those messages, got caught, went to court, and you know, there was no real punishment. I think maybe he got a bit of community service or or something like yeah, that. Yeah,
1: he, he got he got let off, yeah.
0: So so that if you're someone who's thinking about racially abusing Ian Wright, you're going to think, great, there's proof that there's no punishment. Um, it was like I, do I got think... one
1: free one kind of thing
0: Exactly I do think that there are some good signs Because this is the thing I agree with you on both counts I think it's good that there is something being done about it Even if it is performative Performative is better than nothing But I do think it's good that there's some stuff being done I think it was <laughs> There were a few funny moments that came out of it as well Like I don't know if you saw this But Mateo Kovacic um, Didn't have a Twitter account prior to this weekend But he created one Just so he could boycott the platform along with everyone <laughs> else <laughs> Yeah brilliant What an ally yeah. Yeah, great, great ally that gave me a good chuckle and you know it is good to see that at least there's something being done you could tell that a lot of players do actually believe in it sterling came out rashford came out they thought it was a good idea um and there have been some positive signs from clubs as well. Very recently, Chelsea issued a 10 year ban to one fan for posting anti-Semitic messages online. And United this week have banned six fans for racially abusing Hyung Min Son after their game against Tottenham, including three season ticket holders and one on the season ticket waiting list. So that's great. My only slightly, and I don't want to be a pessimist about it. I just want to, you know, be a bit of a realist. The only thing that's slightly, you know, concerning is it's difficult to know how effective these bans will be. From a very anecdotal perspective, I know I don't know him, but uh, it's a friend of a friend. I know a guy who was banned for life from the Britannia for using some pretty appalling language towards Liverpool fans that I'm not even going to repeat on the podcast. Um, and this same guy still turns up to the games. So whatever checks are in place can't be that effective. I don't know if he uses like a fake ID or something, or he just wears a cap and sunglasses, but th- there's this guy who said this, this very dodgy stuff specifically aimed around Liverpool fans. I'm sure you can infer what it has to do with, um, and is still going to games despite having been banned for life
1: yeah obviously it all needs to improve and that's another way in which you know what i was trying to say it can't just fall to social media the premier league and premier league clubs have fallen short in many ways um, and they need to be putting resources and time into this um, it, it can't just be passing the blame
0: yeah 100 percent. That, that that's that's what is the whole thing for me it's like this is great if this is step one but if this is the premier league going well We've done the work, and that's it. Time to hang up our hat and, and say good day. We've defeated racism. You know, K- Kendall Jenner did the first blow. We did the knockdown punch with the social media blackout. That's it <laughs> solved, and we never want to hear about it again. Definitely. I mean, well,
1: this is a, you know the, a long line of um, this is part of a long line of of conversations about tokenism and and how it can affect the game. You know, I, a lot of players have started to not take the knee because they are worried that it's becoming so performative that. Nothing else is being done. Clearly, mm. things are still being done, and and stuff is still being thought about. But yeah, you've got to just keep trying. It there's no there's no easy, quick solution to this.
0: It, it it's going to take a lot of work. It definitely will, um, but hopefully we're taking a step in the right direction. The pessimist in me says I'm not. I'm not convinced, but hopefully I'm, I'm wrong, and this is you know the first dinner a, in a series of very positive steps uh, towards it. Um, hopefully, yeah. There's um, there was one
1: thing that I wanted to say, just that came out f- from my perspective from the Alan Shearer and Ian Wright conversation. He was saying that. Um, you know, he was saying that he he's often scared to, to comment or or say anything in case he makes a mistake or says the wrong thing. And I understand that. I do. Mm. But this is to everyone, whether or not you're Alan Shearer or just someone talking to your mates. If you're scared to say the wrong thing, don't say nothing. Educate yourself. You have so much responsibility to learn.
0: Mm. Yeah, I th- I think that's the thing. It's like... Ignorance is not really an excuse in the modern age, where everyone has this tiny rectangle that has all the information in the world on it.
1: Exactly, because yeah, as good as as good as Alan Shearer was in that, and as as much as I respect him for being willing to have that conversation, I did think, you know, you you can always do more.
0: Yeah, for sure. Anyway, lightening us up with a little bit of useless trivia um, after that somber, somber but very necessary conversation. Um, I've got one connected with the Serie A this week, um, because we were talking about Jose Mourinho at Roma, and obviously, Serie A had a very interesting uh, conclusion this weekend where Inter Milan won the league for the first time since 2000, and uh, I think the first time in 11 years, first time since 2010. Um, And I learned a very interesting fact about one of Serie A's up and coming talents, Zlatan Ibrahimovic who at 39 is just in the <laughs> early stages of his promising career um, by their metric. It shows and, no
1: signs of slowing down.
0: No, he, he's, a, he's a young talent. He's got, you know, 15 years ahead of him. Uh, and since that is since 2003, Zlatan has failed to finish top of the league in just three of the full seasons he's played. And what's interesting about that is, you know, it's an impressive down on its own, but those three full seasons were 2011-12, when whilst playing for... Uh, Milan, he lost MC out to Milan. Antonio Conte's Juventus side. 2016-17, whilst when playing for Manchester United, he lost out to Antonio Conte's Chelsea side. And 2020-21, <laughs> where, again, whilst playing for Milan, he lost out to Antonio Conte's Inter Milan side. There you go. <laughs> the,
1: the bane of his existence.
0: Foiled every time by Conte and his glue-on wig. <laughs>
1: Do you reckon Antonio Conte could could have got the best out of Zlatan Ibrahimovic? Uh,
0: yeah, I think so. I, th- I think he would have. Yeah, fair enough. Asked <laughs> and answered. Thank you. yeah, he like he likes a temperamental striker. He worked really well with Costa. He's worked really well with not that he's temperamental, but he's a very um, you know he's he's a striker that several managers have failed to find the best in Romelu Lukaku, and Conte's definitely found form in him. That we haven't seen before anywhere close. We've seen him have good seasons at Everton and West Brom, but here he looks like, you know, pretty third best striker. Well, third or fourth after sort of Harland, Kane, Lewandowski, probably, in the, in the world. Yeah, yeah, good point. Very fair point. I agree with you. So, so yeah, I, I think, think, think he'd have handled Ibra quite well. What have, you, what have you got? I've got quite a fun little fact about a, um, a logo, a crest on
1: um, a... Small Irish football side called Drogheda United FC. Their um, logo United. involves the um, the often seen in um, typically um, or like predominantly Islamic countries of the the crescent moon and the star. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there because um, in the Great Famine, Ottomans secretly smuggled food into Drogheda to help support them. So they they. Um, put it on their logo in gratitude to the Ottoman Empire. I I was going to say, because,
0: correct me if I'm wrong, but Drogada's colours are red and white as well, aren't they? Is that also linked, or is that just a coincidence? I, I'm not, I haven't seen that confirmed. It's like a dark, sort of almost clarity red, but...
1: It's a dark red, yeah, yeah. Um, Pass. Don't know. right.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Uh, finally wrapping up with a look at some of the European semis. We had the first leg in midweek uh, and I think all of these games are very interesting because for me, Rupert, I have a theme that I think unified all of them and something that we haven't really talked about much in the podcast. Sometimes we talk about momentum or we talked about in-game management or these sort of different things that affect what this is in a game and that's rhythm. And I thought that all of these okay. games had a very interesting, you know, if uh, the rhythm of the teams was very interesting in, in, in how the, the teams approached these games. Some teams had a real rhythm that we hadn't really seen with them before. For example, I looked at Edinson Cavani and how a number nine affected the way that their wingers played. Some teams had a rhythm that was really disrupted. For example, I looked at PSG and how removing a Cardi or Keen really disabled the effectiveness of killing Mbappe. So I sort of just want to have that as something to keep in your mind, keep in my mind, keep in the listener's okay. mind. <laughs> okay, um, okay, okay. And something that I'll call back to a few times, but that's, that's my unique unifying theme for these games um, and shall we start with the tie that was not necessarily the most surprising but maybe the most interesting in terms of where we could see it going being Real Madrid versus Chelsea
1: Yeah so I mean this is a great example of of what I would say the unifying factor in all of these is which is just um, whether or not teams are able to fully close the door and like take, take games away from their opposition um, and Chelsea, for all intents and purposes, looked like a pretty solid team. Um, you know, they, they held Real Madrid to very few chances for the first 45 minutes. Um, and if anything, you know, could would be upset that they didn't win the game.
0: Yeah, I think Chelsea were very, very impressive. And it's it's kind of weird to say that I wasn't that surprised by that, because obviously Chelsea earlier this season, if you took Chelsea... Uh, You know, week six, and here you said, "What's the score if they play Real Madrid?" You'd say, "Well, anything can happen in football, but probably three 0 Real Madrid." And here, as you said, everyone was sort of going, "Chelsea were unlucky to not win that, you know, win that outright and potentially win it by quite a bit." And what this really reminds me of, and some might say this is a lazy comparison, but I don't, and here's why: I see a lot of similarities (laughs) to this and the two thousand eleven twelve Chelsea one that Chelsea had. on the
1: bandwagon. (laughs)
0: No, but I I do, because, you know, obviously this is against another Spanish giant in the semi-finals. They played a Portuguese uh, wonder team in the round before, uh, where they played Porto this time, they played Benfica last time. And there are many other similarities. You know, in that season two, Chelsea started off with a manager who sort of was seen as quite a young, promising manager in Andres Villas-Boas, and partway through the season, um just sacked him and brought in instead Roberto Di Matteo and then saw a resurgence of form. Obviously this season, Chelsea had Lampard, promising young manager, didn't really work out. And it sort of showcased then and now the effectiveness of Chelsea's brutal revolving door that, you know, you've got no time as a manager. As a result, they've won a lot of trophies over the last 10 years, because if someone's not showing signs early doors, see you later. And usually they bring in someone better. Um, Again, in that season, they were on course after sacking their manager and bringing in a new one to, you know, they won the FA Cup and the Champions League. Currently, Chelsea are, you would have to say, in the advantageous position in their tie and also in the FA Cup final. Um, you know, I think, um, the other one that I think is kind of funny, and I look forward to this moment if it happens, and if it does happen, uh, all remember to uh, retweet me saying this, that uh the big moment for Chelsea in that Champions League final, I think for Chelsea fans, it's probably drunk for scoring the winning penalty. For everyone else, it's the Fernando Torres and Gary, Gary Neville just creaming his pants. And do you know if Chelsea have, like, a misfiring striker who's been really ineffective this season, who could just use one moment to earn your know, glory for that club? T- Tammy Abraham? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, no, that's what I was thinking of. <laughs> no, uh, well, also, you know, Tammy Abraham had a, had a one-to-one parallel that season, and Daniel Sturridge, who was weirdly their top scorer in the league, Um, which I don't think Tammy Abraham is. I think it's... um I'm not, I'm not even sure who, who it is, but yeah, I know Terry Abraham was, was sort of the Daniel star of that season, whereas, you know, you've got Timo Fernando Torres-Werner. Uh, watch him round and sc- round the keeper and, and score to win uh, that tie. Um, so I think there's a lot of similarities. I don't know if you think that's a really lazy comparison. If it is, uh, hit me up in the comments and tell me I'm being lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do think there are also a lot of key differences that Chelsea have with that season that could maybe prevent them from winning, you know, winning the Champions League this time around. The most obvious difference obviously, is um, the strength of the spine. Chelsea had a few rough patches that season, but the spine was Czech, Terry, Lampard, and Drogba, which is, to date, one of the strongest spines in modern football history, whereas now the spine is Edouard Mondi, who's, I would say, a good keeper. I don't know if I would go if I would say great keeper, just because it's not... Been enough yet? He might continue to build on it. Silver, who's great but a bit old now and has a mistake, and then Cante, who's not at his best but still capable of a of a good game, and Werner, who, as I mentioned, is just is just not there. Maybe you could throw in Havertz there if he's sort of settling under Tuchel, but either way, it's not quite Drogba territory, is it?
1: Yeah, I mean they're not the side they were. Um, however, you know, not to uh, throw f- fuel on the fires of your um, metaphors. Tammy Abraham is currently the top goalscorer in the Premier League for Chelsea.
0: There we go. I didn't know it, but I knew it inside.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I knew it in my heart. Um, you know, when was the last time Chelsea lost to West Brom? Was it 2011-2012 season? Yes, it was. You
0: know, Illuminati confirmed. Maybe. <laughs> Illuminati confirmed. It's all the same. You know, triangle Um No, I think it's interesting. I think. You know, Chelsea looked really, really good in this first half. I do think that maybe, as with quite a few of these ties, they will regret of not twisting the knife where they could have. Because I think, particularly in the midfield... It's just such a big danger area for Chelsea. In the first leg, they were able to dominate possession and did really, really well in the midfield in the midfield sort of area. But you wouldn't bet against the midfield trio of Modric, Cruz and Casemiro flipping it on his head in the first fixture. They all looked a bit sluggish. And partly, part of that was Chelsea playing really well. But I just... Do I see those three who have been so good for so long dropping another goose egg like they did in the first leg? It could happen. I wouldn't put money on it.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's... This whole discussion of whether or not Chelsea could be the dark horse of the whole competition, I, I kind of feel like they've missed their moment. I, I think that you're absolutely right that Real Madrid won't allow themselves to be picked apart in the same way Chelsea were dominant for so much of that game but failed to you know create enough meaningful chances and convert those chances. So, yeah, I think they carved out a really promising opportunity for themselves and then subsequently kind of like folded their hand.
0: Yeah, very, and also, you know, obviously, there's that midfield thing. Also, Sergio Ramos is going to be back. I just there, yeah, a he might me be that...
1: back, but Rafa Varane isn't going to be back. Like, you can give and take all of that,
0: but I the, think Ramos I just... is so much more important to that team, it, certainly as a defender, and I think also just like leadership and everything like that than anyone else they have at the moment. Personally, though, Varane's v- v- good, but he's, he's had an iffy season. But but anyway, um, I, I I you know I did watch that first leg, and there are parts of me that thought, oh, Chelsea could go on and win this 3-0 and then that led me to thinking when they didn't I was I was sad. sadly going like have they wasted an opportunity here to make it to the final and maybe not but
1: well yeah I mean so often like these like bold tactics that um shock teams it's a sucker punch and if if the sucker punch doesn't you know knock your opponent down then they're just gonna turn around and batter you if they're bigger than you <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. I I think it still could be interesting, though, and Chelsea have definitely done a lot better than we would expect them to. And just in terms of, you know, narrative structure, um, (laughs) if it happens, (laughs) we had our crystal balls here and we predicted it.
1: We sure did. Well, one of us did. Um, Uh, Let's talk about City and PSG.
0: Yeah, so looking at this tie, it was another really interesting one because City, again, started without a striker. And much like against Spurs in the Carabao Cup when they didn't start a striker, we saw them floundering for quite a while without a striker. It looked like they weren't going to do so well in the first half. It took until, I think, the 64th minute for them to get a goal. Um, And even though they did run out 2-1 winners, the two goals they did score, the Kevin De Bruyne one was kind of like, a freak accident goal, really. I don't think... He might have been trying to shoot, but it was it was one of those... I remember that Bakayi Saka one, he was like, of course I was trying to score. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I think... Well, then the collectively, the world just went, yeah, cool, bro. Yeah, okay, man. And then the other one was that that really, really poor wall from PSG, which is just not really okay in a, in a Champions League semi-final. But it, both of those goals, I was kind of like, if you take that shot again 10 times, it maybe goes in once. And fortunately today, both the one out of tens have come true. But you can't expect to score those kinds of goals consistently.
1: Sure, yeah. I, I also again kind of feel like this is another example of just PSG having been the better side for at least half the game. And the first half, definitely, yeah. Not being able to capitalise on it. Unfortunately, yeah, that's just sometimes how football is. You have two chances, you score two goals, and it's you know it's not their year again.
0: I thought it was weird from PSG that they decided to leave out both Moisekin and Marocardi. Um they were both not only subs but unused subs and Mbappe was the one who was leading the line. And as good as Mbappe's been this season, you and I, I mean, we've talked about this a few times, but when we were talking about you know him going to City and things like that, for example, we've talked about how throughout his career, he's often, I mean, he has this season worked as a lone striker, but I think the best you see him is when he's playing off a a, a sort of further forward striker, like a number nine, and he can operate off the shoulder and the the number nine can create space for him. And there were definitely at least two really notable examples for me, Mbappe got into really threatening spaces on the byline, looked up, tried to cut it back and there was just no one there to do it. It was either Neymar who was like behind two defenders and just fell over when the ball didn't come to him or it was no one and both of those times I was like, if there was someone with a little bit of physical presence who could have sort of told the centre back to fuck off and got to the ball, they could have, you know, twisted the knife a bit better. Um, Now in the second leg we've seen the reverse we look at the 11 and Mbappe because of a knock has missed out on a start while a makes the 11. So it maybe just feels like they've just got it a little bit too wrong and much like we talked about with Chelsea maybe thinking they've failed to to twist the knife PSG now have to go to the Etihad 2-1 down with two away goals and it's just it's not a situation you want to be in we talked about just before we started recording the podcast about you know when we saw the team sheets okay Mbappe's out well I suppose then it'll fall to Neymar And Neymar could do it, he obviously was very key in La Remontada for Barcelona when they had that big comeback season, but he was so anonymous in this game, beyond that sort of, the the first goal they scored, he forced the corner for it, but beyond that, he just didn't really do that much, it just wasn't the kind of performance, you know, you'd be hoping for from the world's most expensive player. Um, So, you know, do I believe that Neymar can put the game on his shoulders and turn around for them in the second leg? Again, it could happen. I'd be a lot more confident. If, if, you had, if you had to ask me to choose between PSG missing one of them, Neymar and Mbappe to help them come back, I would do Mbappe every day of the week.
1: As in, you think Mbappe is more impactful than Neymar?
0: If, if you said to me, like, okay, the rest of the PSG 11 you've got your Ricardi, you've got Di Maria, all that, you can only have, for whatever reason, one of Neymar and Mbappe to try and launch this comeback, I'd say Mbappe every single day of the week. I just think Neymar has a tendency to go missing in games like this.
1: He can do. The only thing I would say to counter that is that I feel like Mbappe works really well as part of a team. And I think that's why he, he struggles when Akadi isn't there. But if you're looking for someone to produce moments of brilliance, you can't look past Neymar as, as that talismanic number 10 who, who can just create something out of nothing. And he did do it throughout the, the City game, even if you know he didn't quite manage to have the impact on the score sheet that he would have wanted.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a part of me, and this might be extremely out of pocket, but that just wants to call him a Brazilian Alan Saint maximando <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> Is he fantastic to watch play? Yes. Has he got technical ability coming out of his, of his ears? Absolutely. Is he going to be a reliable goal threat when you need him in these games? He does it sometimes, but then other times, like in this game, you know, you can understand why City are well used to being able to mark strikes out of the game. They had their centre-backs forcing Mbappe wide. You would have been hoping that it would have been Neymar sort of trying to twist the fullback's blood. Or look, I think they had Cancelo at left-back in that game sort of drifting onto that side and sort of going around him or getting around a little bit of an older Carl Walker, but instead he just sort of did nothing really and just was falling over a lot, Um, which is just, again... Not to be that guy who's like, oh, a player's price tag defines exactly what they should be and that's what they should stick to. Because, you know, obviously there are loads of players who who bought for loads of money without the phone. Anyway, is the most expensive player ever, though. And I don't think he's ever been even close to the best player in the world.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think... yeah, I, I don't disagree with you. I mean, PSG paid hand over fist for him and they got him and he is what they wanted, which is a really exciting... PlayStation player who like does thrill fans at times, but isn't doesn't have the the presence in the dressing room of a, well I guess the spine you were talking about earlier, like the Drogba or the Lampard or or even the Czech.
0: Well, sort of though, because I think, I think when PSG bought him, and obviously I don't know, I'm not in the boardroom of PSG, so I don't know if this is why they bought him, part of it's going to have been branding, but it seems to me that the narrative when they bought Neymar was very much like, it was at a time when he was getting better year on year, and the conversation had been, Messi or Ronaldo, Messi or Ronaldo, Messi or Ronaldo, and it seemed as though the conversation was just about to become Messi or Ronaldo or Neymar and PSG were getting the player who was going to be part of that conversation and he just hasn't hit that potential. I don't think he's got better since going to PSG.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's because he... I mean, Liga isn't as much of a... It's just not as strong a league and I know that it's having an amazing time right now with the competition, but competition aside, just the average player is not as strong because... There also, this,
0: this this is the first year it's been that competitive for a long time.
1: Yeah, exactly. There just isn't as much money in it. There isn't. There aren't as many top, top, top players. Um, so yeah, it, I'm not surprised that he hasn't improved because you need you need to play against the best to to get better to become um, the best. So yeah, I mean, I think um, I will be joining you and probably all other old. Boring Premier League fans and probably Graham Soonis as well in lamenting the, the real lack of true number nines in the PSG Man City game um, <laughs> Moving on to the other half of Europe Manchester uh... United took Roma apart pretty comfortably
0: Yeah, and all, in my opinion, thanks to Edinson Cavani. We just talked about, you know, PSG maybe missing out a big striker. And uh, obviously they had some on the bench, but here's a striker who was playing at PSG uh, in Edinson Cavani. And for me, it comes as zero surprise that United want to hang on to him. All the hallmarks of a number nine, it just shows how important that is to Manchester United's system as we were talking about that rhythm when you have these players instead of sort of running aimlessly around like Martial does or Bruno Fernandes pinging on through balls to a to a Rashford or a Greenwood who's sort of isolated and not able to do much with it Cavani not only is impactful as a forward himself but creates space for Fernandes to operate into or the wingers to run in behind and it, it just it feels like the puzzle piece and it, it sort of reconfirms to me when we talked a few weeks ago about where Harry Kane could go and I was like like if United get him, they win the league. I just still think that. I just think that that profile of player, and I think it's fair to say, Harry Kane is a better player than Edinson Cavani. But just Edinson Cavani, when he gets a run of games for Manchester United and when he's in the right kind of game like he was here, is just able to galvanise that entire squad and turn them into a much more lethal side than they usually are. Because you look at a lot of United's games this season, another thing we talked about is how many nil-nils they've had. They've not been lethal in all their games, but they were here, 2-1 down, come out in the second half and respond with five goals unanswered. That's the definition of lethal.
1: Yeah, it's it's pretty powerful. Um, I guess, I mean, for some in some ways, I was looking at this Man U Roma result, and I was just thinking, there's almost the perfect Man U result, apart from the two goals conceded. We can talk about that in a sec, but you know, for Bruno Fernandez to get two, for Cavani, their number nine to get two, and to, again, as you said, prove that that's the kind of profile of player they need, and then Paul Pogba to to pitch in as someone who's coming back into, you know, some some vein of form, and then the last five minutes, a, a young player with a lot of ambition to come on and score a goal. I just thought, do you know what I mean? That was a real, like, there were so many bows wrapped onto that uh, that present of a result. Um The one thing is that, yeah, they, they conceded two to a Roma side that we've both agreed is not particularly hot right now.
0: Yeah, but, I, you know, they, they conceded two. But this is the thing, it's like they conceded two um, I think Roma did play well in this first half. But I think the other thing that's worth commending... Obviously, I gushed about Edinson Cavani there. We've talked about before whether Ole or Solskjaer is good enough. And I think that question is still up for debate. But I think the one thing that he has undeniably changed at Manchester United in the post-Ferguson era... Is how commonly their heads would drop in the face of adversity. A lot of times, under different managers following Ferguson... United would be, on the end of a bad result and things would just get worse and worse. You could even argue, I think, with games like 6-1 Man City, that one, you know, the, when the City won the league, um, that we even saw the start of that at the end of the Ferguson years. But certainly, at least in the Champions League, we've seen quite a few big comebacks from Man United. They had that big comeback against PSG in the Champions League in 18-19, and that was across two legs. Here, they were even more efficient. And being 2-1 down at the half at home is not a comfortable position to be in. We're about to talk about, you know, Vera Arsenal, who. Who had a really uncomfortable... Um, I mean, they're, they're going to be at home with 2-1 to play against, but it's still not a comfortable position to be in. Two away goals is just not fun, and it'd be very easy to let your heads drop, just like PSG did, actually. Probably they're a better comparison than, than Arsenal. They sort of let their heads drop after Man City started to come alive. United, conversely, came out and didn't just put in a good show and win 3-2. They came out and they went, no, all right, you've had a go, that's fun, we're awake now and we're going to score five. Um, and I think that is something that we haven't really seen post-Ferguson until now so so I, I would give him credit for that Yeah, you're right, I think definitely
1: also credit, you know, just to Ole for being given the time to rebuild and we're seeing, as you said, this is a new brand of Manchester United this is like a, a side that has I guess come out from under the shadow hopefully for them uh, of of their past success and is trying to, you know, build
0: something new. I think, just as a sort of a final sort of aside, I I was talking earlier about sort of Carl Anker at the United protests... And sort of some of the things, I was focusing more on his comments about sort of the nature of the protest, but one of the other things that he pointed out when he was interviewing United fans was that he said that the mood of the fans was resoundingly pro-Soulshire. Now, they are second place, they are on their way to Europa League final, so that might seem like a no-brainer, but let's just take a second and think about how United fans have been towards their managers over the last 10 years. Mourinho, even when he was winning games, people were booing him out. When he won a Europa League and was second, Louis van Gaal, people couldn't wait to get out of the club, David Moyes, people couldn't wait to get out of the club maybe the fact that United fans are actually behind Ole of Solskjaer could be one of the big reasons why he ends up being a success there. Um, Not that I know if he will or not, not that I'm confident to put my, my sticker of approval on him, but that could end up being really important, especially with fans coming back into the stadiums next season.
1: Yeah, I mean, I do completely agree with you. I guess the only thing I would also say is that it takes time to heal wounds, and after Ferguson left, We've talked about how that was a poison chalice. Um, you know, no, I don't think any manager was going to be able to replace him straight away. And it kind of feels like Solskjaer's has just had enough time since Ferguson left for fans to be able to get back on board with him.
0: Yeah, he's he's come after the refractory period. ended. I, no, I don't disagree with that. Um, last and indeed least, we come to Arsenal, who faced <laughs> off against Villarreal, uh, managed, of course, by Arsenal's former manager, Unai Emery. Um, and this was one of those games before the ball was even kicked off. You could tell it was going to be a bit of an Arteta special because he decided, for whatever reason, to line up for the first time ever without a striker. Um, now, what compelled him to do this? <laughs> you know, to change his system to an as yet unused shape in a European semi-final. Channel your inner Pep, my friend. Only he knows the real reason. <laughs> but I, all I could see in my mind when I looked at that lineup was him sort of standing next to Pep Guardiola and Pep being like, "Ah, you see, yes, you can play with no striker and do all this." And God, and he forgot to tell Arteta, but you need a team worth eight hundred million. <laughs>
1: It's like in the in the fine print. It's like this just not worked nine times out of ten.
0: Listen, <laughs> so I, I, it's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> this is the thing. I I think Emil Smith Rose a really promising talent, but for all of Martin Tyler calling him the Croydon Croydon De Bruyne De Bruyne, he is not. He he's not a one for one replacement.
1: This is true, yeah, um, and that was shown in the fact that it didn't really work.
0: It didn't really work at all, and you know immediately they conceded immediately they were sort of all at sea again this sort of jack left back experiment just shows teams that they can raid arsenal down that left side if they have any bit of pace similarly down the left side they had callum chambers and vrl have a lot of pace up front um sandwich had one of the most fun nights of his life i'm sure just running the ball past fullbacks and eventually at a certain point it became a numbers game um a late penalty for Arsenal has sort of meant the tie isn't over yet because they now go to the Emirates with an away goal and it's only 2-1. And I think, although they sort of had a man sent off and so eventually did Vierry out, but they were playing with 10 for a while, they did do well to not concede more. But it was just one of those where a, a, the, the narrative has been like, well, an away goal for Arsenal and it goes to the Emirates, so still very much a winnable tie. And obviously that's true. Anything can happen in 90 minutes. But I I I'd really want to... Like, I examine that statement and like I go... 2 on to Arsenal, you think they're going to overturn the deficit based on how they played in this game. Also, they're at home, where they've lost something like 10 league games this season. It's not exactly a fortress at the moment, the Emirates.
1: No, it is not. And as we've seen, you know, in European competitions and in domestic competitions, it doesn't really matter anymore, apparently, whether or not you're at home or away, because fans just have so much of an impact on that.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's, there's no sort of fans unsettling people when they come in, or, or, or have being at the team's back. Overall, I thought this game was just—it was a microcosm of Arsenal's season this year under Arteta. This tie and sort of the subsequent final that the winner of this one would reach, so Arsenal in theory, it represents for Arsenal the only salvation they could find this season. This has been a horrible season for them. They may very well finish in the bottom half of the Premier League table. The only thing that could have redeemed this season, and even then it would have still been quite a bad season, would have been to win a European trophy, albeit the less important of the European trophies, but one that they've not won before, qualify for the Champions League, and get something out of the season to bring them back into, you know, you could maybe argue, okay, well we've had some success, and knowing that, the manager decided to gamble on a new formation, the result of which was unconvincing, unexpiring, and frankly, unexciting football. (laughs) And also, you know, I guess just,
1: it feels like vintage Arsenal as well, and this might be harsh, but it feels like vintage Arsenal, to not lose so completely that it's com- it's all over. Like They're just limping on.
0: Oh yeah, to, to leave the fans with a shred of hope before losing 2-0 at home. It's good stuff, Arsenal.
1: You're nothing if not consistent.
0: <laughs> Consistently inconsistent, for sure. Uh, shall we resolve guessing game? Let's,
1: yeah. So I will read out the clues for you again and we'll see how you got on. So the first clue is that this player could have been a professional skier before opting to become a professional footballer instead. And his brother plays for Bayern Munich. Uh, He played for one club for 15 years before joining a Premier League side towards the end of his career. And he has the fourth most ever caps for Germany. Cameron, do you have a player in mind?
0: I, I do, yeah. I actually had two players in mind until you said that last clue about... Well, all the way up to the end of your last clue... Uh, And that's played for one club for 15 years, joined a Premier League club. So for me, when you talk about most ever caps for Germany and play for one club for 15 years, and they've got a brother at Munich, all of that says to me that they probably also played at Munich because that's where they've had a lot of stalwarts. And if you're talking about people who played a lot for Germany and also played a lot for Bayern Munich, I'm assuming it was, it can only really be one of Philipp Lahm or Bastian Schweinsteiger. Now, maybe it's because I can imagine... Uh, Bastian Schweinsteiger doing the double moguls a little bit more than Philip Lahm, but also the fact that Philip Lahm didn't go to any Premier League club, whereas Schweinsteiger did go to Manchester United uh, at the back end of his career for a weirdly, um you know, muted and, and not that notable spell. So that is going to be my guess, Bastian Schweinsteiger.
1: It is indeed Bastian Schweinsteiger. Well done. Hey, I was doing, fantastic. I was, <laughs> I was doing my best to to mess with you and hide in plain sight. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that you you'd kind of second guess yourself and try to like furiously work out who who you might have been missing, but no, you're you're bang on. Bastian Schweinsteiger it was. Bastian Schweinsteiger it
0: is. Who who is his brother at Bayern Munich? Is it just like a reserve player or someone I'm missing or is it like in the big age gap and it's like a 16-year-old Schweinsteiger
1: Um it's um it's elder it's oh actually no sorry that is a mistake from me he he played for Bayern Munich um ah, but for the reserves okay. it was his brother
0: Tobias that do, that does ring a bell Tobias Franzer anyway I'm glad I got that one right because I'm I'm sure I'm about to be hammered savagely in settling the score um because you had a a, a real week
1: I did have a week it's classic every every time I think about putting um a quid on the results and don't is the weeks that I start to predict the score lines bang on. Um, So we start with Palace versus Man City. We both thought this was going to be pretty one way. And I mean, this really could have gone to either of us because I predicted 2-0, you went for 3-0. It ended 2-0, but realistically, you know, it it could have been 3. Um, So commiserations to you, three points to me. Brighton took on Leeds next with the final score ending 2-0 to Brighton we both got it wrong you called it 2-1 to Leeds I said it was going to be a 1-1 draw so I was very slightly less wrong than you I will take a single point for my very dubious efforts Um, you pull it back with a correct prediction of a 2-0 Chelsea win against Fulham I said it would be 3-0 I was wrong you then took more points Everton-Aston Villa you said 2-2 it was 2-1 to Villa Newcastle versus Arsenal. You were actually not close at all, but you were you were closer than me. You called it one-one draw, and I said it was going to be one-nil to Newcastle. And, and it was neither of us believed Arsenal. in Arsenal,
0: which I which I, I think is completely reasonable as for for reasons we've just mentioned. But uh, they actually came in clutch against Steve. Steve Bruce managed to make them look good.
1: They sure did. Um, Manchester United versus Liverpool. You predicted a very boring match, with no goals scored. Is that no technically goals correct? No goals were scored, <laughs> but was it boring? I don't think so. You know, if anything, I would say my two nil to Man U really represents the thrilling nature
0: of of the weekend fixture. You... <laughs> well, the the fans have managed to score against the Glazers and Sky Sports. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we,
1: we'll we'll put that one on ice. We'll come back to it if it ever gets replayed. You know, I'm desperate to give you points, Cam. I know you need them. Um... Oh God, tell me about it. <laughs> Uh, you take a third point in a row. Tottenham Sheffield, you called it 3-0. It was 4-0. I said 2-0. So well done. You're scraping it back one by one. Unfortunately, however, you were to receive a double hammer blow on Monday night. As West Brom took on Wolves, drew 1-1. I predicted 1-1. And Burnley lost 2-1 to West Ham, just like I called it.
0: So I will take it 10 points to 6 the the amount, i think there's five different results here that i was one goal away from getting three points on not including the ones i the, the one i did get three points on but that's the game i suppose uh, so yeah you you run out 10-6 uh and getting to the end of the season i looking in pole position to win it unless i can win every single one of our last weeks
1: well sometimes cam it do be like that and uh yeah so um for those of you wondering what the uh, the punishments will be or the rewards will be um, the first is that Cameron will be very kindly contributing some money towards us going to watch a match together. The full details of which match we'll be watching yet to be discussed. I will
0: be providing the beer. Well, or if I lose, I'll be providing the money for the season tickets. Don't, 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 don't discount oh, the not, remontada. Did I, not,
1: did I not say that? Did I, <laughs> did I say when?
0: Uh, you said, well, I think you meant if.
1: I must have meant it. My apologies. The loser will have to do that and the winner will buy the beers. Um, So uh, time will tell.
0: (laughs) Uh, I think that about wraps us up for this week. Uh, Rupert, great to talk to you as always and let's get off to watching the Man City game.
1: Cam, thank you and thank you to everyone at home for listening. We'll catch you next time.
0: Cheers, guys. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.